0: I wanna to begin today, there's a, an interesting story that comes from the pages of Jesus' life in which he cleans out a temple. And um, I don't know if you have this dynamic in your home, but in my home, it's very true. There is a bunch of us who are clutterers and there is one of us who is a declutterer. And so that creates some tension every once in a while. And so I I got a call this week, actually it wasn't for me, but I answered it, it was for the declutterer um, because someone had had gotten rid of, the declutterer had gotten rid of something from the house that one of the clutterers wanted to keep. They hadn't used it for seven, eight years, but it was gone and they were now looking for it. And so that created a conversation. And so um, if you have ever known that to be the case, you know that that can be a little tension. And so if you are a declutterer, you will appreciate the acts of Jesus here in John chapter 2. Because Jesus, uh, normally we think of him as a pretty mild guy, but Jesus could be pretty firm when he needed to be. And uh, in John chapter 2, uh, you read this account from the life of Jesus in which he declutters um, a temple that he had a wonderful heart for that had turned into something um, Very displeasing to him. In John chapter two, verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Again, this is the busiest time of year in Jerusalem. And Jesus went to Jerusalem in the temple. Uh, Again, this magnificent structure that uh, stood as a place for meeting with God, prayer for God, um, just all, all the religious center of their life. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, if you read other Gospels, they tell you that they're sitting in the court of the Gentiles, which if you were a good Jewish person or good Jewish male, you could go all the way into the inner part of the temple. Then there was the court for the women. Then there was the court of the Gentiles on the outside. And um, God built that so that Gentiles could connect with him. But the Jews had turned it into a marketplace and it was noisy and it was busy and it was corrupt. Um, And so Jesus, in verse 15, making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Other gospels use this, you've turned my, uh, this is meant to be a house of prayer, right? But they had turned it into a house of commerce. Verse 17, his disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so Jesus said to him in verse 18, what, do you, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, you walk in here and turn all these tables upside down, who, who gives you the right to do that? Jesus answered, we'll destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple when we, and um, will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And so Jesus declutters the temple. And uh, I have a video this morning that's kind of a testimony of, uh, of, of someone who might have been there, what that might have looked like and felt like for one of those um, who wanted to meet with God in that place, but weren't really allowed to because of the chaos and the corruption that was a part of that. So take a listen, please.
1: I was there the day that Jesus walked into the temple. He just stood there at first, almost as in disbelief. And then I saw it. I saw that fire growing in his eyes. I'd come from Galilee to the place where God said he'd meet us. Did it feel like a scam? Yeah. I was that never able to afford a lamb for my sacrifice, so I had to settle for one of those overpriced pigeons. As a young wife and mother, there's a word you never expect to be called. Widow. I didn't realize how safe I'd felt with my husband around until he was gone. And then it just felt like being exposed on every side with nothing in between your babies and a world of vipers, but me, just me. So I stood there that day in the temple and I watched as Jesus grabbed a whip and drove those businessmen out of the temple, poured their money on the ground. But more than that, There was something about the expression on his face. I recognized it. He swung that whip like vipers were threatening his kids. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. (laughs) Took me three years to figure out what he meant. (laughs) Slow learner. (laughs) He wasn't talking about the building. That was a place where dishonest men put their grimy fingerprints all over God's glory. They defiled the intimate process of worshiping Him. That day wasn't about destruction. It was about hope. Because now, knowing God is all about Jesus. As I I think about that day back in the temple, and I remember what Jesus did and how he did it. It felt like being rescued. Life can still be brutal. My kids' appetites are still growing. I still cry a lot. a place for me to be still, where rest and trust meet right there at God's feet. And the price of that access, it's paid because of Jesus. He conquered death, and that's how I make it through life.
0: If you keep reading the story of Jesus following his death and his resurrection, the presence of God moves from a temple that Jesus walked into and cleansed, cleaned out, cleansed, because it had become this corrupt, uh, I love the phrase, that great greedy men to put their fingers all over God's glory. And it had become corrupt and taken away the whole purpose of why God wanted there to be a temple in the first place, which was simply for people of all nations to come and meet God. Uh, and if you keep reading the story of the Bible, you find that pretty soon the, the presence of God moves from a stone structure to the hearts of men and women. And now you and I are called temples. We are a temple of God. If you are a Christian, you are a temple of God. And I wonder sometimes, as we think of the theme today, which is money, which you don't have to yoohoo, yoo-hoo that, um, but just, uh, it's this theme of money. I don't want to just come up with this from Um, a purely numbers perspective, because I don't think we, that's not what Jesus is talking about. I wonder if Jesus doesn't sometimes look at our temples, your temple and my temple, and just get a little disturbed, just like he did there, because it's just become so cluttered. So many things have gotten in the way of what it was supposed to be. Um, If you read the Core 52 chapter this week, Mark Moore basically outlined three points on this whole theme of money in the Bible. And the first is that God wants our hearts, not our money. The second is stewardship is spiritual. And the third is generosity brings blessing. And really today I wanna focus mostly on the second of those statements and finish with the third. But the idea that stewardship is spiritual. I wanna camp on that because what you hold in your hands, when you think about your resources, money, house, car, all the things that are yours, when you look and you hold them in your hands, there may be a lot there or there may be little there, I don't really care. But do you ever stop and think about all of that is spiritual? I don't think we think on that much because it's just money, it's a house, it's a car, it's these things, it's just stuff. But Jesus wants us to know that it's all spiritual it all connects to what's going on deeper within us. Because how you think about this stuff, about how you get it, about what you do to keep it, um, how you want more of it, it's all spiritual. Because it can draw you closer to God or it can take you further away from God. It can have a profound effect on others for good or for ill. And so Jesus talks often about money and he, More than any other topic, probably in the Bible, because I think this profound relationship between our stuff and our souls is something that needs to continue to be examined and monitored. And so I think when I come to our text today, which is Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 25, in the Sermon on the Mount, in this sermon where Jesus, we've looked at this theme a couple of times where it's not about so much the actions, but it's very much about the heart and I've been convicted of that tremendously as we've gone back through the, this, this last few weeks, that Jesus is always going to the heart. He's always going to our hearts. Like, where's your heart at? Why do you do what you do with what you do? And so he says this, and I think in a way, this is one of the ways that Jesus can take up the whip and begin to clean out the clutter of our hearts in our temples, in your temple and my temple. And he begins to move things around and he warns us and he speaks of an invitation to us But if your eye is bad your whole body will be full of darkness if then the light in you is darkness how great is that darkness no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve god and money so there is a warning and an invitation found in those words And as we've seen before, again, the Sermon on the Mount is all about our hearts and and the actions follow the heart. And so um, there are a group of people who do a lot of actions, but their hearts are far from God, but there are people whose hearts are very near to God. And it shows because their actions just show where their hearts at. And so Jesus wants you to consider the wealth and possessions in your life from a heart level. And so he comes and he challenges what's going on inside here. And here's the big question I want us to think about today. What is your stuff doing to your soul? What is your stuff doing to your soul? Is it growing your soul? Is it making it love God more? Is it making you trust God more? Or is the way you're dealing with stuff in your life, is it shrinking your soul? Is it shrinking your heart for God? And so what is your stuff doing for your soul? Now, before we proceed further, I just need to define a few things because you read verses like this and you think, well, what is Jesus saying and what is he not saying? So here's three things he is not saying in this passage. Number one, Christ is not saying it's wrong to own property. Um, You can go back to the Ten Commandments, even long before that, and you find lots of examples where we're told not to steal. And when someone says you shall not steal your neighbor's property, that implies that that belongs to them. And likewise, there's stuff that belongs to you. So this isn't about not owning property. Christ, number two, is not teaching that we should despise material wealth. Um, he's not calling us to be monks who live in a cave and have nothing. First um, Timothy 6.17 says, God richly provides us with all things for our enjoyment. Uh, we ought not to be greedy, but God does put things in our life, um, and he wants us to enjoy them. They are blessings from him. And they can be a huge blessing in our life if we approach them rightly. And number three, Christ is not teaching that we should neglect saving for future needs. Um, We balance this passage with Proverbs chapter six, where the proverb writer points us to the ant. The ant is busy all summer doing his thing without boss or manager, whatever. And he just does his thing because he knows winter's coming. And so he stocks up all summer, then winter comes and he survives because he's stored up wisely for a rainy day or a cold day. And so what is Christ talking about? I think the emphasis of this is really about the selfish accumulation of wealth that is simply focused on me and what I can get out of life. When he says, do not accumulate for yourselves treasures on earth, I think the emphasis on yourselves is important. That God gives us wealth to provide for our daily bread. He gives us wealth to, uh, to help others, to spread his kingdom, to do good things in this world. Luke chapter 16, verse nine says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by how you use worldly wealth so that when it runs out, you will be welcomed into eternal homes. I like that verse, just this mental picture of taking what I have and using it to create relational warmth and blessings so that it just comes back in its own special way with God at work in that. So we shouldn't hoard our wealth as though it's ours alone or our needs alone. God has called us to be channels of blessing and not reservoirs. And so if I'm going to be a channel from which God can put resources into my life and your life, and then the world is better for it, how do we do that? I think we learn to be channels of blessing by really thinking on Jesus' words here. And I think he does two things here. You can read these words from a more negative warning kind of perspective, but you can also read them from a more positive, invitational kind of way. And that's that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the warning first, then we're going to look at the invitation second. So let's look at the, the warnings first because Jesus warns us about the mess that money can make in our lives and in our souls in particular. I probably should have put the word soul there instead of lives because money can certainly make a mess in your life if you've ever had that fun experience. It can do that, but really the thing that Jesus is getting at is it's the soul. It's that whole temple thing where Jesus can look at our soul and wealth and possessions and money he can do so many things to make a mess of our souls that they get so cluttered and, and it's like, where's God in all of this? It's just so messy and chaotic. And so a financial net mess is never fun to clean up in your bank account, and lots of stress and struggle goes with that. But the mess that Jesus is speaking of is deeper than that. He speaks to what wealth can do to our souls if we can't, can't if we aren't constantly evaluating and monitoring our souls. So I wanna look at four things, four warnings that he gives us about why wealth is a dangerous thing to just let it run its will in your soul. Number one is this, is that wealth creates a mess because it leaves us no matter how hard we try to hold on to it. Wealth always leaves us no matter how hard we try to hold on to it. Wealth is fleeting. No matter how long you live, how much you accumulate, at some point it always leaves us or we leave it. Somewhere along the line, it's going to disappear. Do not toil, Proverbs 23, verses four and five. Do not toil, which is that word for uh, over the top effort and work and constant work. Do not toil to acquire wealth, but be discerning enough to desist or to rest or to stop. Know that, you know what, I've got enough. And there's, we see that, maybe we struggle with that. It's like, well, if I just go a little further, there's a little more, that's a, that's a carrot being dangled before us, right? When your eyes light on it, it's gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle, toward heaven. Money disappears so much easier and quicker than it ever <laughs> arrives in our life. And so wealth is fleeting. And hear Jesus words again when he says, "Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth." Uh, again, the context of the Bible, he's not saying it's unwise to save up for a retirement or a rainy day, but he says there is a there's a balance to that. There's a balance because he warns us that You may have a stockpile and in their culture, they would stockpile food and clothing and and some valuable jewels or things like that. Well, what happens to those things in their culture? You get nice clothes and what happens? The moths come in and they they eat holes in it, so it's not nice anymore. Or or rust destroys, it's a picture of eating or, or something that eats it. So it could be rust, it could be foxes, it could be rats, insects. They get into your food and they spoil the food. Or where thieves break in and steal. In a world that didn't have nice safes or banks to put things in it would be common for people just dig a hole in their house somewhere they'd hide their stuff and the thief would break in and find that and steal it Um, and so he challenges them to just be aware that all the possessions i have they are fleeting they are not eternal they are just for a time and if i if i'm aware of that and if i'm approaching them from that perspective my soul is going to deal with that much more Um, wisely and with a lot more more less stress and worry in my life knowing that this is all temporary. There are eternal things that Jesus talks about. Um, And so he encourages them, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy, where it doesn't rust, let me just read the verse, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So he contrasts these two kinds of wealth. and so. What is he talking about there? What is that eternal wealth? That's fine to talk about it, but what's he talking about? Well, Peter quotes this verse in a way when he says in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 3 and 4, that part of this is relational with God. Certainly the things that I do with and for God are are in this category of eternal treasures or are treasures that last. Peter says this: that Jesus has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable or undefiled and unfading. All the things that just picture corruption in our world and and deterioration, there are things in Christ that are separate from that, that are not touched by that and they are kept in heaven for you. So what are heavenly riches and how do we store them up? Paul uses a weird analogy. It's kind of not a weird, it's it's one that we all would relate to if if you've ever uh, experienced what he's gonna talk about. But he talks about his own ministry and he talks about the foundation of his ministry is is the message and the gospel of Christ and everything that they do is built upon that message. And then he warns in the context of where they're at in 1 Corinthians 3 of different kinds of builders that people sometimes come and try to build on that foundation um, with cheap and Uh, not real authentic things. Maybe their motives are wrong. They're doing it for themselves, not for Christ or for his glory. Or they're trying to do uh, things and, and they don't hold up well versus others who come with sincere motives and with a real heart for God. And so he says this, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. So he's talking about Paul and is planning this church and other preachers have come along and begun to build on on this foundation. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds in the foundation with gold or silver or precious stones, again, high quality things, or lesser quality things, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. And he's talking about judgment day talks about there will come a day when we stand before God because all things will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And I think that fits here because if I was to think, you know what, at the end of the world when Jesus returns and everything burns up, what will be left that I have poured my soul into? What will be left of my bank account or of my house or of my cars or of my clothes or all the possessions, all that stuff? It's a good long list of categories of things that won't be there anymore. And so have I invested into something else, which is the people part of it, because people are eternal. The souls of people are eternal. So I have I poured into the lives of people in a way that honored God and glorified God? You see... He's talking about works that are done to spread God's kingdom or just living out your life that grows character or builds up godly virtues in our life or godly ministry or godly sharing or godly helping of people around us. And so God calls us to realize that our soul can become so attached to things, but he warns us that's clutter and I need to fight that tendency because all those things will leave us no matter how hard I try to hold on to them. And so Jesus goes on to give us another warning Another warning is this, it deceives us because it tempts us to trust it instead of God. One of the things that wealth will do to us or possessions can do is it deceives us. It promises to satisfy the desires of your hearts. And so buy this or have this or get this. And you get this and guess what? Your heart is satisfied maybe for a time. But guess what? Next Christmas is only what? Eight months away. And by that time, is that right? Ten months away. That's, that's scary, 10 months away, relax guys, you got 10 more months to figure out what you're gonna get them. And so, um, but anyway, 10 months, right? But next Christmas, you going think, last Christmas is what I really wanted, what I really thought I needed. I'm still hungry, I'm still thirsting, I'm still after those things, it just never ends. And so Jesus warns us that, that wealth can promise to satisfy your heart's desire, to matter, your heart's desire to be noticed, your heart's desire to, to, to be significant, but it doesn't. And we tend to think also that our wealth will take care of us. If I just have enough, I'm isolated from all the hard things and the bad things of the world. And there's some truth to that to an extent. That's that's why a savings account can be a healthy and good thing. But there is a limit to that. We've all seen people who have uh, accumulated much, but then the things that really their relationships fall apart or their health falls apart or all those things. And all of a sudden the stuff doesn't protect you from those hard things in life. And so Jesus is warning us that don't put your trust in material things, but trust in God because material things will deceive you. God will be faithful to you. Kent Hughes is a pastor and he wrote these lists of questions that help us to search and examine our hearts. And, and I love what he said. Um, so think about these things as far as what is it that your heart is focused on? What is your soul focused on? His first thought was this, what occupies our thoughts when we have nothing else to do? What do you daydream about? Is it investments or position? If so, those are the things that we treasure and that is where our hearts really are. So where does your mind go when just things get quiet and and you just start to, to daydream? Number two, similarly, what is it that we fret about? On the flip side, what is it you worry about? When it's just quiet, what do you, what does your mind begin to worry about? Is it your home, your clothing, your accounts? If then, you know where your treasure lies. Three, apart from our loved ones, what or whom do we dread losing most of all? If you were to make a list of the things that you would least like to part with, what's on that list? Number four, what are the things that we measure, measure others by? And I think this is a really good one. What do you measure success in other people by? This question's revealing because it shows the mirror by which we're probably looking at ourselves too. Do we measure others by their clothing or by their education, by their homes, uh, by their athletic prowess, by their talents or other things? Do we measure others by their success in the business world? If so, we know where our treasures lie. Or do we measure by deeper things, by character traits and things like that? Lastly, what is it that we know we cannot be happy without? And as you begin to work through a list like that and you think there's probably things that have cluttered my soul, that Jesus would probably have me to, uh, to diminish them, to get rid of some of them, at least in their, their hold in my heart. Because if I'm trusting in those things to do something for me that only God says he can do, I'm being deceived. And Jesus is trying to help us clean out the mess. Number three, uh, it creates a mess because it blinds us, causing us to miss the important things in life. Um, Some of the saddest stories in our lives are, I poured myself into my career and my profession and gaining and getting that I lost the most important relationships. I lost my marriage, lost the relationship with my kids, all in pursuit of things. And now the people are gone and the things leave us empty. And so this blinds us, Jesus says, he, he has these weird verses in verses 22 through 23 that I think in this context are speaking about money things. Um, what's that eye talking about when he says the eye is the lamp of the body? Um, the eye tends to refer to one's heart or it's, its person's focus. And Christ gives the illustration of an eye being the lamp of the body right after saying, this is where your treasures are. And that's where your heart is at as well. And so Jesus is trying to help us to see this, and the word healthy that he used a healthy eye, is the same word that later in James chapter 1, verse five, when it talks about we ask God for wisdom and he generously, that's the word, gives wisdom to us. And so he's talking about this heart that is healthy and whole and that is generous. In that context, he's, he's talking about a healthy person who sees and, and who's, who's clear about that. And so are we blinded? to those real realities of life. I love the story that Jesus tells. It's, um, it's the story of the rich, man, the rich man and Lazarus. That there's a rich man who lives inside his walled estate and every day Lazarus, this poor beggar, is late at his gate. And um, the story is like the rich man has everything. Lazarus just longs to go and eat the crumbs that fall from his table. He's that desperate. And then they both die. And Lazarus goes to Hades to a place of torment and and excuse me, the rich man goes there. Lazarus is taken to a place of comfort in the arms of Abraham. And there's just this great transition that takes place. And part of the challenge in that is that every day this guy laid at your doorstep and you did not see him. He was right at your front door and you did not see him because you had been blinded by your wealth and your security and your comfort And it can be easy for wealth to blind us to the real needs that exist in our own life and the lives of those around us. And so wealth is dangerous. It can create a mess in our life because it blinds us, causing us to miss the important things in life. And number four, the fourth warning that Jesus gives later on here in verse 24 and 25 is that it enslaves (laughs) us. It steals our freedom to serve God and others. That money can very quickly, possessions can enslave us and drive us. Matthew 6, 24, and 25. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Christ just simply warns us about who's really who are you really devoted to? You can always discern one's master by where their devotion lies, right? And so when God or your your desire for more comes calling, and you have a choice to make, who do you choose? And if you always choose career and profession and more over what God's asking you to do, then that's your master. You may say you love God, but that's your master if that's where you always go and you obey. And so God calls us through this to realize that wealth can very subtly and powerfully enslave us, and we're so driven to have more, to be more, to to find the status that comes with having that we say no to God in a lot of ways. Probably it's very simple, uh, simple ways. Um, we looked a couple weeks ago on Wednesday night at the beautiful picture where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And the, the, the idea that Jesus and all of his disciples were sitting in a room and it was customary in that culture that someone would have washed their feet when they came in the room, but no one had done that. But why had no one got up and washed, washed feet? Because that was a humble thing. They wanted positions of power, even talks about how they're at the table, they're arguing about who's the greatest among them. And so all of them said no to humbleness because they were seeking prestige and power. And we all can do that. We can miss the humble things God calls us to be in serving him because we just get caught up in this whole thing that enslaves us. And then yet yeah, Jesus, the most powerful person in the room, takes the most humble posture as he washes their feet one by one in that circle. And so he's warning us in this passage, be careful your heart can become so cluttered that you miss out on a lot of things. So he warns us, but he also welcomes us. So very quickly, I just want you to turn this passage around then. So there's the side that I can look at this and find a lot of negative, a lot of warnings. But I can also stand and look at this and say, Jesus is inviting me into a way of life. He is inviting me into a way of life in which I look at my possessions and the things that I have from a, ple- from a place of blessing. And so Jesus welcomes us into the blessing that Christ-centered resources can create in our life. That when, as we look at those th- th- things from our reading this week, that stewardship is spiritual, but also the blessing comes when we handle them rightly, when we see them as, yes, they are spiritual, and I can do great spiritual good with what I have, Um, there's an invitation there. There's a really good thing there, right? It's not just stay away from money. It's embrace what it can be from a kingdom perspective. When I see myself as a steward of it, Paul quotes Jesus in Acts 20 verse 35, these simple words, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And that blessedness does not mean, oh, I give it so God gives me back more. It's blessed as a state of heart. It's a condition of heart. It's being pleased pleasing to God and pleased, uh, God is pleased with me. And it's that idea of being at rest in God. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And so what does that look like? How do we do that? Um, let's go back to those verses very quickly here and just look at a couple of things. Number one, a Christ-centered stewardship, number one, makes an eternal difference. Instead of just pouring myself into things that are here today and gone tomorrow, I am pouring myself into an eternal thing. And sometimes that happens week by week, day by day, little thing by little thing, but I'm making an eternal difference. And there is something that feels very good deep in our souls when we believe we are connecting to something bigger than us that will last into eternity. When we are investing into the lives of people, when we're caring for the needs of people, when we're doing things that that are not just temporary fixes, but they're pouring into the hearts and lives of people, it grows our soul when we are investing in things that are far beyond us. And so Jesus invites us to have that confidence of knowing that, boy, I'm pouring my life into kingdom things, and those are eternal. They're not just here today and gone tomorrow. Number two, a Christ-centered stewardship can be a strong expression of your kingdom commitments. Um, I show my commitment to kingdom priorities by stewarding my resources into things that build his kingdom. I love the story of Barnabas. He's one of my favorite Bible characters in Acts chapter 4. You find this guy, he meets Jesus, he joins the church in Jerusalem and he's got a field. He just goes and sells the field and brings the money to the apostles because he knows there are brothers and sisters in their their new church that are going without and he just lays it for the meeting of the needs of people. That's a guy who made a strong expression of his kingdom commitments by just taking something he had, sold it, and just gave it to meet the needs of kingdom people. Um, And it doesn't have to be a field. (laughs) I don't wanna set the standard way up here, but it's it's simple things um, that we uh, we can do that make a strong expression of our kingdom commitment. Number three, um, a Christ-centered stewardship can be a faith-building exercise as we give it instead of hoard it. It is a faith-building exercise as we give it instead of hoard it. You want your faith in God to grow? then make a commitment to give more away In, in his name, not because you're haughty or wanting the attention. Jesus already talked about that earlier in Matthew 6, but just make a commitment to give away more in the next year. And that's a scary thing, right? Because our heart is drawn to hold on to, but as you give more away, what you find if you talk to people who give more and more away over the course of their life is that they have these wonderful stories of how God met their need every time. And they never even realized it was gone. They just saw how God took care of them. And they have these wonderful faith-building experiences as they give instead of hoard. Proverbs chapter 3, you know these verses from five and six. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. So you think, well, how do I do that? How do I trust the Lord? How do I acknowledge him in all my ways? Well. Keep reading. A couple of verses later, you get to verse nine. One of the ways we do that is honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled to plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. But that key word in that verse is that first fruits because that's an Old Testament idea that when they first started harvesting, they would go out and they would do their first little pass through the field and they would get some, get some grain and then they would go give that away. That was their first fruits trusting that when they went back to the field, there would be enough for them to be, have their needs met. They didn't wait till the end, think, okay, we got this, we can give this part away and we're safe. It was, we got this, we'll give this away, trusting that God's going to provide for us. And their faith grew because of that. And that's the hardest step sometimes to do, is to give to God first. And so we are called to do that. And so people who tithe and people who go beyond that and, and give even beyond that, what they find is that God Um, blesses, God provides, God cares, and your faith, most importantly, grows through that experience of giving. It's a very tangible way where we grow our faith is by giving away. And finally, number four, that um, a Christ-centered stewardship can build love and friendship as we use it to serve others. The Bible is full of examples and encouragements for this. Um, We said earlier that um, stuff, material things are spiritual, right? Stewardship is spiritual. Um, And you read verses like this and you find exactly why that statement is true. James chapter 2, verses 15 and following says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for their body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works is dead. You see, one of the tangible ways that we build love and friendship is as we use, over time, we use the stuff that we have. We use our homes, we use our our money, we use our cars, we use the things that we have. How can I use this to serve someone else? And we do that in a way that creates love and friendship. Um, Generous people tend to have lots of love and friendship floating around in their life just because they create a culture for that. John confronts us with this in 1 John chapter three, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, that's powerful language, right? What we're talking about here. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. We are called to be doers. That this whole idea that stewardship is a spiritual exercise is all tied to, it's how we show, right? We put deed with our faith and it shows our faith. And so a Christ-centered stewardship, it's about us investing in eternal things. It's about a strong expression of my commitment that I, I believe in Jesus and his kingdom and, I, and his, his mission. And so I will show that by my my use of my resources, that I can be a faith-building exercise as I grow and I even test my faith by saying, okay, I'm gonna give more than I have ever had before and see how God meets that need. And it builds love and friendship as we use it to serve other people. Jesus is inviting us into a way of life. Yes, he warns us about the clutter. He, that's, that's him cleansing out your temple, but he's involved, inviting us to a better way, a new way of living. Out our life and today that's my invitation for you and I to be humble to be open to be watching and to be listening for her God may be leading us to work and to grow um, and, and oftentimes we think just of our checkbook and that certainly applies to our checkbook when we talk about this, about this stuff there are so many things that you and I control we may not have many dollar resources but we have things in our life that that we can use for the good of other people And if we are open and if we are listening and we are prayerful, we will find ways to do that and to bless others and to bless God and so that he will be glorified most through that. So that's my prayer today for us is that we would have um, the heart of Jesus in this. And so I'll finish with the question we began with. What is your stuff doing to your soul? Is it growing it or is it shrinking it? My prayer is that, the stuff in our life is being used in a way that our hearts are growing, that are, our faith is growing, that our, heart, our love for God and, and for people is growing because we have the ability to help them with our stuff. So let's pray together, please. Father, we come today recognizing that we live in a world, in a culture, in a people um, that put at a high value, a high esteem, having a lot. That the good life for most people in this world is having a lot. Lord, it's my prayer today that whether we have a lot or a little, that we understand that um, we have a lot with you. And so when you put a resource into our life, may we surrender it quickly. May our grip on it be loose so that you might use it for your good and your kingdom and, and for the good of other people around us. That is a hard journey for us, and it requires your leading and your wisdom and your help, and so we ask for that today. We pray that you would help us as Jesus cleansed that temple in John 2, that he would cleanse our hearts from from the pull of idolatry and covetousness and greed that can so easily find its way into our hearts, but that you would replace it with this generous and, and kingdom-focused heart and soul that loves to use what we have to make Jesus famous in our world. And so, Father, help us in that journey day by day as we find opportunities um, to honor you with what we have. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.